So we are studying through the glorious book of Mark, written by John Mark, who was not one of the disciples, remember, but he was uh, on the early missionary journeys with the apostles. And he was kind of early on, just remember, he was rejected by Paul the Apostle. Uh, We were reading Corinthians, that's one of Paul's works, uh, because Mark had quit on one of the journeys. Things got difficult, and he decided to go home. And it left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch. They were depending on him in some way, and Paul felt like, hey, uh, that's just no good. So when it came time to go again, Barnabas said, well, let's go get Mark. And Paul said, you know, quite frankly, no way. I'm not taking that guy again. So he got rejected by the apostle. That never feels good. Uh, not that I've been rejected by an apostle. Not yet. <laughs> but I have had, you know, some rejection occasionally, and that doesn't feel good, does it? But in God's wonderful sovereign plan, uh, this, this most likely, we know that John Mark got connected with Peter, and uh, he became a close associate with Peter. In fact, early church history records that he was Peter's interpreter. Uh, that means he would go along with him and possibly translate into different languages uh, they were very, very close. So, uh, so as a result, he heard Peter's sermons, his talks, his teachings over and over and over again. And then through that, the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write this gospel, the gospel according to Mark. It could be, and it probably doesn't need to be, but you could almost say it's according to Peter because uh, it's definitely got a lot of Petrine fingerprints all over it. And as you know, we're in chapter 12, uh, as it says there in the very fine print. Uh, And we're in in Holy Week, as we would call it. Um, Jesus has already come into town. Palm Sunday occurred a couple of days ago uh, in the text. And this is building up to what? Friday, Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. Just a just couple of days away. I, th- I think it's interesting just to observe that although Jesus, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He prophesied it very clearly. And of course, as creator God, he foreknew it and created it ahead of time. Uh, he's not like in some sort of retreat, you know, in a, in a bed shivering or hiding uh, he's out in public. He's teaching. Where is he? He's in the temple. <laughs> Who runs the temple? It's, it's the Sadducees and the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're his enemies. They're the guys that will crucify him. You know, so far be it from Jesus to hide. He pushes forward. He's there. He's reaching out. He's teaching. And we find him caring about the truth and teaching the truth publicly, even when I think humanly uh, he might have been in retreat or hiding, not not Jesus, not hiding uh, from his enemies. He's out there, uh, right, and 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 actually interacting with them and and reprimanding them 
uh, and challenging them as we find him doing in our text today. Um, and remember last sermon, I wasn't here, but uh, Alan, one of our elders who prayed for us today, uh, preached. And it's, it's a turning point in the, in the contentious interaction that Jesus has been having with this same group of people, the power structure, Sadducees, scribes, Pharisees, because uh, they've been, you know, sending emissaries to him to try to trip him up, and he always gets the better on them, uh, typically by uh, just depending on Scripture and pointing out that uh, they've got it wrong. In fact, you know, in the text, verses um, 24 through 27, remember he's got the parens, the parenthesis, in verse 24, he's speaking to the, the, by the way, these are the, the Sadducees, which are the highest of high. They're the power brokers in the Sanhedrin, the people that run the Jewish government underneath the Roman occupation. These are the guys that will crucify him, essentially. And, and what does he say to them in verse 24? Is this not the reason you are wrong? Wrong? <laughs> and then how does he say it in uh, verse 27? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So my outline, you know, Jesus' outline to the Sadducees is, you're wrong, and you're really wrong. <laughs> Wouldn't you call that sort of in-your-face, sort of confrontation? Yes, and actually he bowls them back with his uh, absolute knowledge of the great truth, since he is the Word of God himself. But but last week's message is kind of a turning point because uh, the guy who comes up to him, one of the scribes, he ends up asking Jesus, you know, what's the what's the uh, commandment most important? See verse twenty eight, and Jesus quotes the Bible. I always find that wonderful. And and the the man says, "Wow, uh, see verse thirty two. You're you're right, uh, teacher." Uh, you have truly said that he is one, that is, God is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And, and it says, look at verse 34. Here's the turning point. Now he's not saying you're wrong, you're quite wrong. It's, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This scribe was not far from the kingdom of God. And of course, what that means is that you're not far from getting it right, from being in right relationship with God. You're not far from having proper faith in me, Jesus would say, as I am the king and when you know me, you're in the kingdom uh, of God. And, and then notice what Mark says. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So he had uh, answered their tough questions purpose per- perfectly. And then when he found a scribe that was um, close to the kingdom of God, he treated him lovingly and invitingly and uh, didn't say, 
you know, get away from me. I don't like you or anything like that. He said, you're really close. And uh, then no one else had any more questions. So you'd think, okay, well, you know, close up your briefcase and go home. But Jesus doesn't do that. He continues to teach in the temple. See, and that's our text today. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he's there again where you shouldn't be. You're in the enemy's house. Not, not retreating. He's right there and he's teaching. Who gives you the authority to do this? Of course, he is the Lord and he has all authority. It's his temple. So he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now he's not saying that these Jewish scholars, the scribes, were wrong. Uh, they're right. The Messiah, the Christ, you know, the Greek word for Christ is, means anointed one. And that is the Hebrew word is Messiah or Mashiach. That's the anointed one. So it's an exact translation. So when he says the Christ, they could say the Messiah. Messiah is an English transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. So the, he's not saying, oh, the scribes have it wrong that the, the Messiah is the son of David. No, because he has a point to make, right? He's saying David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, and this is a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, and it says in Hebrew, Yahweh said to Adon, Adonai actually, which is my Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And that is about the Messiah. David is writing about the Messiah. He's saying that Yahweh, who, who, that's the Hebrew name for God, of course, sometimes pronounced Jehovah, it's the same word. Yahweh says to Adonai, which is my master, David's master, and this is the Messiah. And Yahweh says, take a seat here, Messiah. You have enemies. We've just been talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. They are clearly enemies. They will crucify him in a day or two. Ultimately, though, Jesus overcomes the enemies, and Yahweh will win. And when the Lord returns, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming in victory, and he will be known as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, over the entire uh, universe. And God will put the enemies under the feet of Jesus. So this is a conundrum, essentially. Now, before we get into exactly what this means, uh, and it's a question of who is he, who is this Lion of Judah, I just want to think about the context here really quickly. We don't have a lot of time. Uh, but this context is so beautiful, and it's so affirming to the, the proper approach to the Scripture and the, the right way to teach and to come to understanding what is true. How do we know the truth? Uh, and look, just look again, the context of how Jesus puts this. First of all, 
He's, he's saying David wrote the Psalms. Uh, this is just, you know, it's a given. He believes this, and it's true. David was a real person. He lived around 1,000 B.C., before Christ, and he wrote this psalm. David said, and then notice also Jesus says, he did so in the Holy Spirit. You see that? Right in the text. Jesus is saying David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. So David didn't originate it. It wasn't from David. It was from the Holy Spirit what he wrote. That makes it the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is God, and he has spoken. That's what makes it authoritative. That's why we can carefully analyze it and think through it um, literally and closely. We can analyze the language and say, this is the Word of God. When David said, Yahweh said to Adonai, we can take those words at true face value. Yahweh is the self-existing God who created all things, and he's saying to the, the Lord of David, I'm going to give you total victory uh, over your enemies. So what we have here, basically, is that Jesus taught the Bible. You see, this is so important, and it's obvious in the whole context, if you look Let's just look in chapter 12. Let's just limit that because we don't have a lot of time. But uh, back up in the very first big paragraph, right? There was a story of the tenants and the farmer. And Jesus' big conclusion is to quote the Bible. Verse 10, and notice what he says. Have you not read the Scripture? And he's talking to people who love the Bible. you know. And he's saying, go back to the Word. What does the Word say? How do we know the truth? You know, he, Jesus told lots of stories, lots of parables, absolutely. But he also taught directly the actual, literal, physical Word of God. The Scripture, the, what, what is written. And, and so he quotes the scripture. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he quotes holy scripture. Then you look down in uh, last week's sermon. Yeah, it was just... No, no, it was a week before last. <laughs> the last time I was able to be here to speak was the question from the Sadducees about the resurrection, right? And the Sadducees came to him, and they don't believe in the resurrection, and so they gave this preposterous story uh, about a man who was uh, a lady who was married seven times over to seven brothers. And they say, well, ha, 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 we got you. What happens in the resurrection? This guy, this woman has seven husbands. You know, it's a conundrum. We, we prove that the resurrection is ridiculous, uh, and Jesus answers them. And how does he answer them? He answers them from the book of Moses, from actually Exodus, and his argument, see, look in verse uh, 26 of Mark 12, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? See, what does Jesus think about who authored the first five books of the Bible? He believes that Moses wrote them. He doesn't believe they were compiled. 
by a, a, you know, a group of editors who got several sources together and sorted it all out and had a big committee meeting. Maybe they voted with colored you know, marbles or something. He doesn't believe that at all. No, he believes Moses wrote the book of Exodus and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Guess what? It's true. That's what Jesus believes. You want to you wanna follow Jesus? Then you should follow Jesus. He says... Moses said, Moses said, and look at, the, look at the way he does this, in the passage about the bush, he didn't, he didn't say Exodus 3, because they didn't have chapter divisions back then, <laughs> okay? That's something that came on much later. He just says, we all know this passage about the burning bush, how, how God spoke to him saying, and so again, he takes it literally. He really believes this weird miracle happened, Amen. Amen. He, he takes the Bible on face value. He believes it. He teaches it as if it is the Word of God as it is. It's gorgeous. I love this because this is the whole affirmation of what we're trying to be about, to be honest with you. That's what we're trying to be about. We do it imperfectly, but this is where we are. But, okay, that's, that's cool. But... Listen to his argument, right? You remember it, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You know what his argument is completely based on? The actual verb tense of the word to be. He's arguing on the basis of a verb tense in the book of Moses. He is using what we call grammatical, historical interpretation of the Scripture. He takes it seriously. The Bible is not some sort of you know, metaphorical poem that we come to it and put into it whatever we think we might want to put into it. You know, God forbid. You have to practice what's called exegesis, okay? which means to bring out what God put in. Hallelujah. Bring out what God... God put in. David said, by the Holy Spirit. Yep. That's the basis for truth. That's how we know anything is true or false. So that's pretty exciting to me. As a, as a teacher, I'm trying to follow in the steps of Jesus. Um, thank you, Lord. Okay, now let's look at, at what he said. Who is he? Jesus is making this argument, again, based on the actual grammar of what David wrote by the Holy Spirit. Well, incidentally, uh, in the longer... No, let's do it right now. I'm sorry, real quickly. I was going to say, in the longer version of the sermon, but this is too important. I want you to look at one verse for me, uh, one passage. Second Peter, please. Second Peter. Coincidentally, uh, Mark's... John Mark's very good mentor. Second Peter, if you have a, a smartphone, I can't hear you turning, but I, I believe you're turning anyway. <laughs> uh, Second Peter 2, 17 through 21. This is uh, what we believe about how we get the Bible. And it's so critical. We're talking about foundational, fundamental issues here. Okay, so verse 16, let's start there. 
for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So just pause there for a moment. If you know anything about the history of theology, you know that that's exactly what uh, the liberal movement of the late 1800s said, that the Bible is a cleverly devised myth. And the stories about the miracles are just mythological metaphors which we can contemplate and think, oh, a burning bush, what could that mean? You know, instead of saying, uh, it meant that the bush was on fire and it didn't burn. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> when, the, when the common sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. When the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Anyway, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, and God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Jesus said, David said, in the Holy Spirit. David is not the author of the psalm. He is the author, but not the, the sole and sufficient author. It is God speaking through him. Someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Second Peter 2, 17-21. Same thing that Jesus is saying. Let's get to what he actually said in our remaining uh, few minutes together. Who is he? What is he trying to say here uh, in, in this? First of all, as I said, he's not saying that the Messiah is not the son of David. He, he believes that. It's been proclaimed in uh, Mark, one of my, again, favorite passages. They're all, all my favorite passages. But uh, remember good old Bartimaeus uh, in chapter 10. Let your eyes go back to chapter 10, verse 47. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. He's Bar-Timaeus. His dad was named Timaeus. And he, what did he say? Jesus, son of David. And they, they tried to shut him up. And verse 48, he says again, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus didn't say, no, no, no. The Messiah is not the son of David. No, he, he accepts that fully. He is the son of David. And the same thing was echoed at what I called Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry that happened a couple of days ago in our text. Verse 10 of chapter 11. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And in other gospels it says, they, they said, you are the son of David coming into your town. So yes, Jesus is a human being. He's genetically 
from David. I, I wasn't here last week because my extended family had a major family reunion back in the town where my dad was born. And in fact, in that same community, his father and his father and his father uh, are buried. And I got to visit all those graves. I got to see uh, Anders Magnus Wren's grave. He was the first Wren, R-E-H-N, on American soil. He died in 1877. And you know what? You wouldn't want to do this, but if you exhumed that grave and found some sort of decent bone or something, you could get some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? DNA, there's the word. DNA from that bone and, and say, you know what? You're related to that guy, right? He, I'm the son of Anders Magnus, Ren. Not directly, but in the Hebraism, I'm his son. Because genetically, my human body flowed through him and several other sources as well. Uh, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I, he, the Messiah is the son of David. He's a fully human. But he's the Lord of David. And this is where he starts to play with their minds. Like, boom! Why didn't we ever see that? How can he be the Lord of David? And by the way, notice the verb tenses. He, it's not he was the Lord. The, the Yahweh says to my Lord, David said in 1000 BC, you go ahead and have a seat while I take care of everything. So the Messiah already exists. He wouldn't be born for another 1,000 years. It's pretty deep DNA, but there's an absolute DNA connection there. But he already exists. He is God. He always exists, as we know from the whole teaching of Scripture. You can't necessarily base that all on this text, but we give me, give me, I have three minutes, you know, to do all theology, Christology here. <laughs> I can't do it all, but we could do it if we had time. That's what he's saying. This is, he is the Lord of David. He's David's master. And then finally, he's a member of the Holy Trinity. Again, you'll have to grant me some grace here. I'm not going to fully prove this in two and a half minutes. But honestly, look at the text. It's really, really cool. Because David himself, in the Holy Spirit, he said, Yahweh says to Adonai. So we have Holy Spirit. We have uh, the Father, who in this case is Yahweh, speaking to his Son. There isn't just, there is one God, absolutely. Jesus just said that. There is one God who exists in three persons. That's what we call the Holy Trinity. It's here in an Old Testament passage. It's most glorious. Right there. And the scribes are going, poof, whoa, that, what? <laughs> That's awesome. It's amazing. Who is he? Who is he? He's one of a kind. He is unique. He, there's no one like him. He is our Savior who came to die in our place as a substitute for us. Uh, all right, now, let me ask this question. Why does this really matter? 
doesn't really matter what you believe. I mean, you might say, Nate, I'm happy you believe that. So what? Go ahead and believe that. I don't have to believe that. I'm free to believe whatever I want to believe. And, and I would say, that is true. You are free to believe whatever you want to believe. However, there is truth. And we all will face the consequences of what we believe and what we structure our lives around. And I find that in the, the last part of our text today. Beware. Beware of the scribes. <laughs> These are the people he's just been talking to. Uh, see, verse 35. How can the scribes say? And now he says, beware. So yes, it matters. You know, danger, danger. I, uh, it's a terribly old reference, but there used to be this show called Lost in Space. Okay? Some of you can retro look at this. And it was, they had this robot that would go, danger, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. <laughs> and as a little child, a six, a seven year old, that was imprinted on my mind. So I can't get rid of that image. But, you know, all that's ridiculous. But Jesus is saying, danger, danger. There is real spiritual danger. The scribes who look like they should be giving you the truth are manipulating things and turning you away from the only truth that can save you. So he says, watch out, danger. Um, he says the same thing uh, for sake of time. Listen to Mark eight. 15. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It matters what you believe. And there is danger out there. For we must be believing God's truth based on you know, historical, grammatical, careful, loving interpretation of the whole counsel of God. God's word. Um, the fundamentals of the faith were, were established uh, in, as a result of the... I mentioned the liberalism that was happening in the late 1800s. And actually, our church has a connection with this old, old history. But these all, these five fundamentals... If, if you ever heard of the word fundamentalist and the whole idea of fundamentals, that started in Christianity... It started around 1919 when Henry Ford was pumping out the Model Ts. Uh, the theologians were getting together and saying, wait a minute, these liberals are pulling us away from our foundation of truth, and we have to stand for what is true. Um, and, you know, these are the five fundamentals, the inspiration and, iner and inerrancy of Scripture. May I point out, that's exactly the way Jesus is operating that the Bible is inspired and is inerrant. I can trust the verb tenses that God has given us. The deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He's a member of the Trinity. The virgin birth was attacked. And, and number four, we were thinking about the substitutionary atoning work of Christ when he died for our sins, according to the Scripture. And then finally, the physical resurrection and personal bodily return of Christ to the earth. Now, I throw that out. We'll talk more about this later. But these are some of the major fundamentals of our faith that we believe, and it seems to me that Jesus supports that. So I just want to go back to this slide. Who is he? And we're going to close with this question. Why is this important?
um, I don't have time, which is okay, but let me just sum it up. I say, see Colossians 2. Uh, Colossians 2 has this idea that Jesus Christ is fully God. He's the creator of everything. And because of that, he is our Savior, and he's the one we should live our lives for. It's the same logic of you. The, there's one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. We, we put him first. We live for him. He's the most important thing in life that we live for him. That's why it's important. It's important who he is. And if he is what the Bible teaches he is, then we ought to get to know him. We ought to get to love him. We ought to live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word today. Uh, Lord, would you teach us as you led David in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we depend on the the great teacher, the Holy Spirit, to lead us into all truth and to convict us of sin and draw us close to you, O Lord. So we pray, O Father, that we would honor you. We sing worship songs. Lord, would that show up in how we live our lives as we humbly come to Jesus, confessing our sins, humbly saying, you are what we need. You're all we need. We want to live for you. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, expecting you to lift us up in due time. Oh, Father, we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.